Chris, you like potato, and I like potato, potato. Well, in this case, we like manuka, they like manuka. It's being called a trans-Tasman tussle of extraordinary proportions. The Aussies have just won another round in the years-long battle over manuka honey. It's now a brand we have to share with Australia. It's a great result for Australia. Manuka honey is a game-changer for the industry. Well, no, New Zealand is not ready to call the whole thing off. Not at all. I think it's probably hard in the resolve of the industry to push on in some way, shape or form to to distinguish New Zealand manuka honey. This is obviously a setback, but we're not wavered in terms of our obligations and our responsibilities to ensuring that our Tonga is protected. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. Today on The Detail, we look at what this means for a brand that is so precious to New Zealand, the next step in the fight to protect it, and keep to ourselves a market set to be worth more than a billion dollars in the next few years. Farmers Weekly journalist Richard Rennie has been following the trademark battle since it started nearly eight years ago, and every time New Zealand has lost in the EU, the UK and now here. The first move to trademark Manuka honey, just the words as they are, uh, was back in about 2015. And it's interesting, when you read the latest ruling, which has basically refused that application here in 2023, the, the commissioner refers to that initial attempts to register Manuka honey and how it was initially turned down by the Intellectual Property Office on grounds that it lacked distinguishability or distinctiveness. And uh, here we are almost eight years later and it's happened again. Noting while the Kiwi Group argued the Australian honey producers have jumped on the bandwagon that New Zealand created for Manuka honey, it does not mean they should be able to monopolise the use of a wholly descriptive term. So it had a bit of a a rocky start to start with. But what, um, what does that even mean, Richard, lacking in distinguishability or distinctiveness? It seems that the uh, the assistant commissioner Natasha Ali in her ruling, which was pretty lengthy, it was 100, almost 170 pages, felt that the claim to be of manuka honey, that phrase, is not distinct enough under New Zealand's trademark act to be quarantined or to be encircled under trademark protection. She pointed to the similarities between New Zealand and Australia manuka honey and that in applying to have the trademark granted that the applicants hadn't done enough to distinguish the differences between the New Zealand offering and offerings elsewhere, particularly Australia. But at the same time, the the commissioner was quite sympathetic. She, she acknowledged the law that she had to work under, the Trademark Act, really lacks this ability to acknowledge um, Tonga value of something like Manuka and its importance to iwi as a, a, a name and as an item. And there seemed to be a level of almost, not frustration, but sympathy that, look, I'm sorry, but this is the tools that I have to work with. And that's been acknowledged by the Manuka Charitable Trust too. The chairman, Peter Tiffany, described the law being a bit of an ass. Our primary goal is to protect the Tonga that only comes from Aotearoa, New Zealand. It's export theft. Uh, It'll have a detrimental uh, effect. But the thing about manuka honey, or manuka honey as the Australians call it, 
It's the same thing, isn't it? I mean, it tastes the same. It has the same special qualities. Manuka honey is taken as a health supplement and to treat colds and flu. It's highly valued in hospitals as a wound dressing, fighting drug-resistant infections. Courtney Kardashian even suggests a Manuka scrub might sweeten your love life. It's like an old witchcraft thing to wash your whole body with it. It depends who you, who you talk to. <laughs> Just talking to a beekeeper yesterday uh, and honey producer, and he's adamant there is a distinct taste difference between the products. Um, there's a lot more that there's a lot more varieties of manuka in Australia that therefore influence the taste a lot more, and that there's no way in hell the two products are the same. Uh, but then you know you've got the Australian Manuka Honey Association saying that this was a sensible decision that that paves the way for more global sales, and that they welcome the fact that the Commission has ruled the products are essentially the same. Hopefully it'll uh, get our friends in New Zealand to put down the guns. The Australians' reaction is, well, of course it's very different because they've won. And, they, you know, they've won yeah, every yeah. step of the way, haven't they? Yes, they have. Yeah, and it, it's interesting in their um, statement, they make the comment, the fact that even authorities in New Zealand cannot find a way to support the trademark claims, we hope brings this dispute to an end. And we can, we can work together now that that have been lost in their own country of origin. You know, obviously what they're saying is, well, look, if, if your own people can't grant you this protection, how the hell are you going to get it anywhere else? We're not a threat to your industry. We're not, not that big. And um, hopefully we can we can work closer together. I mean, there's a few interesting historical things around Manuka honey. I mean, I put it to Karen Cost, the CEO of Apiculture New Zealand, that was New Zealand a day late and a dollar short in trying to protect Manuka? You know, we, we found out about its anti antimicrobial properties and antibacterial properties and things. We started to find out about that in the 90s. Should we not have moved earlier and sooner to protect that once we knew about it and really lock it down earlier? A little bit like maybe we should have done with green kiwi fruit and Chileans back in the 70s and 80s. Could you say that this, there's a similarity here with the, with the kiwi fruit battle? Yeah, I was thinking about that. And, and in some respects, there is, Sharon. I mean, the, the, the backstory to Manuka Honey now and, and something that's come up in our work with uh, pieces of Done for Farmers Weekly is claims of subterfuge and sabotage by New Zealanders in Australia and taking cuttings from the Leptosporum scorpium, the Manuka plant, and, and transplanting them over to Australia. And I mean, it has these echoes of uh, New Zealand green kiwi fruit going to Chile in suitcases for planting in the 70s and 80s. And uh, it all, all sounds a little similar. You know, we're relying on germplasm to create the, the product that creates the value. And it, it is often the problem with biological products like this, isn't it, that they can get out of the jar pretty quick. It does feel like the industry in New Zealand just got onto it way too late. They must have seen the Australians using the term. I mean, the Australians claim that they've been using this term for decades. It's an Australian word, and we have every right to use that. Manuka, as we spell it, is not a Maori word. We don't use a Macron. I get a sense that the sector has in a way it's it, it may not have shot its entire foot but it's shot part of it and that they've had the debate within the the honey sector about a commodity levy the honey sector to my knowledge is the only primary sector group that doesn't have a 
commodity levy on its production, which can be used for research and development for pretty much whatever your members believe it should be best used on. And the honey industry had the chance to vote in a levy back in 2019. And I know even that's getting a little late in the scene for Manuka honey, but, and that had the potential to raise, it was around about $2 million a year, I think. And it was sort of worked out at about 10 cents per kg of honey you produce. It wasn't a lot at minimum 750 kg honey production for to be, to be required. And you do wonder if maybe you'd had a levy that would have given a bit more horsepower to the industry to push things along a bit, bit harder and faster as well. And mm. I think it's a real shame that they lack that because there's huge potential in, in a portfolio of honey products, whether it's Rewa Rewa, Pahutakawa, Manuka honey, and that is where the industry is wanting to go, to have this sort of portfolio of, of, of offerings, a little bit like the wine industry has with Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc or Targo Pinot or whatever. And this does... This does sort of make it harder, I think, to, to, to advance that when you, you're still caught up in your, your hero product, if you like, yeah, or trying to define your hero product. But another interesting thing that the Australians are kind of latching on to, that there are other beekeepers and industry members out there who actually want to work more collaboratively with the Australian industry. We can't meet world demand between New Zealand and Australia. Anytime I talk to New Zealand beekeepers, the overwhelming response is, why are we fighting? Um, are you hearing anything like that? No, look, I haven't heard it, but I've only spoken to a couple of producers who are, one said to me, imagine the uproar if we called power abalone. He said too that it's a little bit like the evolution of the term jandals. He said jandals were created by a company, um, but the, the term was adopted so quickly to describe a rubber sandal that it kind of got into the lexicon and the language very quickly. And this is kind of what the commissioner was saying about Manuka honey. It got into our language very quite quickly as just a term and therefore hard to distinguish as a distinct term. Um, and she, she basically said, you can't blame the Australians for picking up on that uh, relatively quickly. They could see the value in it. Mm. Um, but like the Australia, the Kiwi honey producer said to me, he said, but using the jandals analogy, he said, but what the Aussies have done is they've taken a leather sandal and they're claiming it's a jandal and it's not the same thing. It's a trans-Tasman analogy, yeah. Yes. Actually, I saw a, a story about it on Australian television where they, they managed to bring in the underarm bowl. New Zealand's only hope now is a six of the last ball for a tie. But in the honey war, New Zealand has struck out everywhere. They're going to bowl an underarm. We haven't believed it. Well, uh, it's it's always it's a classic opening, isn't it? Um, what could they take the Pavlova far lap and crowded house? Well, I've never been a fan of Pav, but you know we we should claim crowded house and far lap. I think, and maybe Manuka honey yet too. So could the next step in the tug of war over Manuka be in geographical indications legislation? Think name-protected things like Champagne, Balsamica and our own Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc. It means you can only call them that if they come from the region where they were originally made. It came up in our trade deal with the EU. The good stuff is that they're only going for feta at the moment. So as a naming 
um, GI, Jeff Gaunt, uh, indication. So they've left um, Gouda, Gruyere, Halloumi, mozzarella um, and parmesan all alone to a certain degree. Let's hear more from a lawyer who is part of the battle to protect Taonga Māori. Kia ora, my name is Lanao Tafrihudia, the Tumu Whakahaere or Managing Partner at Kahui Legal. This decision, how did you feel when you heard it? Pretty gutted actually, to be honest. I thought there was an opportunity here to adopt a different perspective uh, when interpreting our Trademarks Act and the Assistant Commissioner didn't take that approach here. How much of a setback is this in terms of the fight to protect Māori words? Uh, yeah, obviously the decision is a huge setback to the aspirations of the Manuka Charitable Trust in terms of protecting the mana and modi of our Taonga species. What it does confirm is that the intellectual property system and regime is not designed to protect our Taonga. Uh, that, that is a fact that is well known both here in New Zealand and around the world. What it also reaffirms is that we do need other regimes and structures to help protect our Taonga species uh, and the government needs to take urgent action to address that. In what way? Can you explain that further? I mean, if this regime isn't designed to protect our Taonga, then what what do we need? Then we, we need uh, other structures, other regimes. Uh, the original claimants from the Y262 Y262 was a Waitangi tribunal claim about the recognition of rights around traditional Māori knowledge and customs. They proposed a tikanga-based framework to protect our taonga. Uh, the, the claimant's descendants uh, have formed uh, Te Taumata Whakapumo and they are exploring the establishment of a taonga framework Proposals have been shared in the past around we need a Mātauranga Māori commission to, you know, look after our Mātauranga Māori. We have the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which talks about recognising Indigenous rights and intellectual property. Um, the World Intellectual Property Organisation is working on a treaty to recognise these rights. So these regimes are known. Uh, they have been talked about for many years and we, we need them. Otherwise, our taonga are going to be appropriated and we are going to continue to have other taonga species appropriated by interests internationally. What else is at risk here? You know, does this have ramifications for other cases of intellectual property protection? Oh, it does. You know, all our native flora and fauna are at risk now because because of this decision. There are a lot of things that could have been different done differently along the way. If we think back to the original research that, you know, sort of kick started the Manuka industry, you know, that research was done based on Mātauranga Māori, but there was no recognition of the rights of Māori to that Mātauranga Māori. Though that science and research was not done in partnership with Māori and so therefore when it was released there was no controls on who had who could use it. Uh, consequently, you know, we've seen the fact because of the fact that 
um, Leptospermin scoparium grows in Australia. They've they've adopted Mayanuka for their honey from that plant that's grown in Australia. Mm. The Ministry for Business Innovation and Employment is is currently uh, reviewing the research science and innovation sector and and hoping to address some of these concerns, but it's all moving very slowly um, and we need to see improvement. What does it say about the fight to protect other Māori words? I think it does highlight that our our kupu are at risk. You know, one of the issues that was discussed in the decision refers a lot to the definition of the word manuka in a number of dictionaries around the world, uh, in English dictionaries. And, you know, the interpretation of that word uh, based on those definitions is quite critical in this decision because the assistant commissioner does rely on those definitions. And yet those definitions, there's no input again from Māori into those definitions. You know, there's no consideration of what it means to borrow words from another language and the the negative impacts that it has on those those words. Uh, What the commissioner says, they become borrowed words, they become loaned words, and, and they form part of the English vernacular. But that's not consistent with how Māori or Indigenous people around the world, you know, consider their language or consider their kupu. They're not considered just part of the vernacular and, you know, not worthy of protection. And I also think that that view is not consistent with a correct interpretation of Te Ture Motereo Māori, which talks about our reo having Tonga status and recognising, you know, that manuka is a kupu from our te reo, and so therefore demands recognition as a Tonga status. And so then, therefore, to conclude that it is just part of the English language vernacular is incorrect and inappropriate. It's been a pretty costly process, nearly eight years, this battle, to fight it in various jurisdictions. I'm just wondering what is next. You're saying that you're reviewing the decision. Are there any other avenues for this fight? Yeah, there are definitely other avenues. I mean, we could consider refiling the trademark application, like I said, with a a Macron over the letter A and see if that makes a difference. We could explore the area of geographical indications, which is an area that we can't yet explore in New Zealand because our legislation in New Zealand only extends to uh, wines and spirits. That is going to change uh, fairly soon once we ratify all the requirements under our um, free trade agreements with the UK and EU. So that is another avenue, but that's that's a, a few years away yet. The other avenue is is a bespoke, sui generis piece of legislation that would assist in the protection of our tonga, especially here in Aotearoa. If we don't have protection here, it makes it so much more difficult to protect internationally. The government really needs to explore protection for our tonga here in in our country so that that can help uh, with the misuse and appropriation that we are seeing internationally. Because does this decision mean that we can we'll now be buying manuka honey in New Zealand that's made in Australia? No, it won't, because 
um, our current import regulations don't allow the importation of honey into Aotearoa New Zealand, the biosecurity um, requirements. So we won't see that available in, in New Zealand immediately. Um, having said that, those settings could change at any any time. So that could be a possibility uh, at a future date. You know, the Manuka honey industry is, is, a, is a huge industry for, for this country. And that's based on significant international sales. If the market becomes flooded with honeys claiming the same characteristics as our honey, uh, internationally, then that's going to have a, a negative impact on that industry. What's the state of the honey industry at the moment? It's very boom bust, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's incredible. I mean, I went to my first New Zealand beekeepers conference back in 2006. It was always a very low key affair, you know, maybe held at a local hotel somewhere um, with not much rah, rah, rah. And it it was a smack in the face to turn up in 2017 to Rotorua Beekeepers Conference. And it was huge. It was like a mini Mystery Creek. There was all sorts of people selling gear to beekeepers who are generally very, pretty retiring, sort of quiet, considered kind of people. And suddenly the industry had felt it had struck gold with Manuka honey. You know, it was only, this was 2017 and a conference had gone nuts. And it must have only been in two or three short years to get to this very sort of uh, expansive conference offering all sorts of goodies for beekeepers to buy from four-wheel drive trucks to cranes, you name it. And that was that was Manuka honey, sort of going from zero to hero in quite a short time. And there was a big pile on into the industry to the point where Dr. Mark Goodwin, one of our most eminent bee experts, saying that New Zealand was actually overstocked for hives. One stage, we had more hives in Australia. I think it was about almost a million hives. That had jumped up. It had almost doubled in only six or seven years. An incredible amount. So we're essentially overstocking our landscape with hives to try and suck as much manuka in as we could because that was where the returns were. Yet here we are now. Um, there is vast amounts of non-manuka honey struggling to be sold on a, on a global market that's pretty full. Mm. And I hear stories of drums of honey in warehouses around central North Island looking for a home. But it's not Manuka honey. No, not no. always. Although there have been claims that Manuka has got harder to sell, but uh, I haven't, haven't. Most people I talk to say that no, no, it, 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 the the quality Manuka honey still has a very ready market. I think it had almost three hundred million dollars worth of export sales last year. I think the year mm-hmm. before. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. This episode was engineered by William Saunders. Our producers are Sarah Robson and Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to Linnell Tuffery-Hudia and Richard Rennie. Mā te wā.